Alejandro Rojas, and I have Jason McClellan with me. Hello, Jason. Hello. Good, sir. How are you? Doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Had a good weekend. What about you? Yes, great weekend, and I'm ready to do a radio show. Radio. So Jason and I are going to talk about some of the news from last week. However, first let me tell you a little bit about our guest today. This is kind of exciting. These are some neat people, Trish and Rob McGregor. They are journalists and authors, and they just wrote a book called Aliens in the Backyard, where they focus particularly on four different abduction cases that they've researched in the book. And so we're going to talk about that. We're also going to talk about their uh, subtitle here is UFO Encounters, Abduction, and Synchronicity. They've actually written several other books about synchronicity, synchronicities in afterlife and things like that. So we'll talk about synchronicities, how they think that fits in with abduction and UFO phenomena. And uh, we'll talk about the trickster effect, which you guys know I love the trickster talk. So it's going to be a lot of fun. Excited about that. However, before we get into that, Jason and I choose one story from the news in the last week, UFO news, to talk about. And uh, we don't do all of the news because, of course, you can get that on on Spacing Out on our YouTube channel. or It's also a podcast they can download, right, Jason? That is correct. So let's get into it. What is your story of the week, Jason? Well, Alejandro, I'm going to have to go to – I thought about this a lot. And mm-hmm. it was a, a story at the beginning of last week, and that, I'm going to choose that one. It was about – um, these fireball UFOs in Texas, in uh, a city called Dicetta, Texas, that's uh, near Houston, Texas. And these fireball UFOs uh, were observed by people, uh, by, by deputies from the sheriff's department. And they were later identified as Chinese lanterns released as part of a celebration from a nearby wedding. So why am I choosing that as my favorite story from last week? Here's the thing. The deputies in this case, I want to commend them for their actual investigation into this case. They did a really good job, and we don't see this very often. But these guys actually contacted the FAA. They contacted the National Weather Bureau. They went out, observed these things for themselves. They talked to witnesses, and they even contacted the National UFO Reporting Center to get some insight on what these fireball UFOs could possibly be. So I think the investigation they went through and actually trying to identify these objects was really good, and it helps a lot of people to understand what these things look like in the sky. And Alejandro, you and I know because we've done extensive testing on Chinese lanterns, on these sky lanterns. 
So, and, and they are very strange in the sky. If you haven't seen them before, they can be very confusing. And in many cases, a lot of people are confused by these things when they see them in the sky because they're just these bright objects slowly drifting through the sky, and then they kind of fade out and disappear. So they're very confusing looking, and it's very important for people to understand what they look like because that can help eliminate those from the things that we focus on. And I want to commend these deputies from the uh, the Sheriff's Department in Dicetta, Texas, for actually going through the investigative process, contacting local authorities and the National UFO Reporting Center, and tracking all this down. Yeah, what seems like really cool with these cops too is that they were really open-minded. They didn't, um, you know, treat the UFO possibility, you know, as as goofy. Right. They actually were open-minded towards it uh, in investigating. And that that's illustrated by the fact that they weren't weren't uh, opposed to contacting the National UFO Reporting Center. You know, right. I think people shy away from that when people suggest it. They're all, oh, I'm not going to call a UFO organization, but they did. So good for them. It's also interesting, too, that um, the Chinese lanterns, I mean, you didn't see them like maybe six years ago or something like that. In right. the United States, it seems much. But they've become huge, maybe because they're more available, but – you know they're they're more popular than any fireworks. They're sold at fireworks stands. They've become really, really popular. Extremely popular. You're right. That's just in the past few years that we've started to see that. And in, in fact, in one of the early issues of Open Minds magazine, I wrote an article about Chinese lanterns, <laughs> kind of pointing out how they become the new weather balloon. You know, everything gets right. credited to being a Chinese lantern, but. In a lot of cases, they are, and that's because we see so many of them now. There's these yeah. strange glowing balls floating in the sky, and they're easily accessible, and a lot of people launch these things off and in large quantities. Yeah. Ooh, let's go on the record on this one, too. I don't know if we talked about it or not, or at least our suspicions. All right. But uh, when we were on um, the uh, – what the heck was the UFO show with James Fox? Chasing UFOs. Chasing UFOs. When we were on Chasing UFOs, we were on a mountain out here in Arizona, and a uh, Chinese lantern was floated up, and luckily Ben McGee had quickly trained their incredible lens onto this thing, so he very quickly saw a Chinese lantern. But it was awfully fishy that right when we were looking that night, that over the next hill this thing was launched. Uh, in hindsight, now having seen the show... I'm a little uh, suspicious that it was their production crew that, that floated that thing up. What do you think? I think you are becoming entirely too conspiratorially minded, my friend. You don't think it was them? I'm giving you a hard time. Yeah, it probably was. And the only reason, the other reason I say that is because this is the same production company that worked on um, the Bigfoot show, and the, the, the researchers on the Bigfoot show said they do believe the producers were, um, and they caught them, you know, kind of faking some stuff, trying to trick them and everything. Yeah, and, I mean, it's not it's not too far fetched at all. You know, it's creating creating entertainment. That's what these shows are made to do. Yeah. And uh, yeah, we were kind of out there in the middle of nowhere, and there just happened to be one lone Chinese lantern that happened to float up right when we were there. Yeah. All right. Well, my story is uh, probably an obvious one because it was the big one. It's still going on, which is the FBI story about uh, what has become the the most popular memo on on their website. Right. And I choose this one though. What I really what I think is really funny and ironic about this and uh, I've been talking to you and Lee Spiegel a lot about this uh this week 
is that the FBI story is that they wrote about uh, this file is really good. They, I mean, they address all of the misconceptions or the inaccuracies that have been out there about the memo that the media has pushed. And unfortunately, even though the FBI was really clear on several points, the media continues to get it wrong. So let me summarize this. So essentially, um, back in the 50s, a memo was written by a guy named Guy Hoddle, uh, we t- Hotel or Hoddle or however you say it. But uh, we had written about this before uh, probably several times. But the memo talks about uh, an Air Force person. It's a third-person type of thing where Guy Hoddle kind of heard a rumor that the Air Force, this Air Force guy had said something about um, possibly three crashes of UFOs with extraterrestrials. He wrote up this very short memo and sent it to headquarters. Um, In the 70s, Bruce McAbee actually recovered this when he did a Freedom of Information Act request. It's in his book about the FBI um, files on UFOs. And Bruce McAbee and others had come to the conclusion that uh, some of you are familiar with a very famous book uh, from Frank Scully. In fact, Frank Scully was the name that uh, influenced the the name for Scully in in the X-Files. But um, Frank Scully's book was about this sort of thing, and he got his information from a guy named Silas Newton, who uh, turned out to be a, a con artist and actually went to jail uh, for a while for doing all these cons with oil. And they believe that he made up all this stuff that he told Frank Scully, including this stuff about these flying saucers and everything. And they assume that this memo was uh, those rumors just coming back to this guy in the FBI. So that's the story. What the FBI addresses in their story is that, um, one because the media had gotten all this wrong, is that when a couple of years ago, the FBI put up an area uh, of their website called The Vault, where they put in popular story or um, popular files that they had like, been getting freedom of information requests on, things like uh, that you would think about were, would be really popular, like Al Capone and Marilyn Monroe and all of this kind of stuff. And uh, this memo was one of the things they put there. Well, that wasn't when they released the memo. They released the memo like they said in this this paper. They clarified the memo was released in the 70s, and it was put up on their website many, many years ago. It was just part of the vault. But a lot of the media, including now, even though they clarified this, are saying, oh, it was just posted a couple years ago, which isn't the case. So that's something the media continues to get wrong that the uh, FBI had clarified. They also said that, this doesn't have any link to Roswell. Uh, Roswell is not mentioned in here. It's also a year, few years after the Roswell incident, so they don't believe it has any attachment to Roswell. And then they also mention, which is really interesting, that they should even be aware of this, but they did mention the, the possibility of this being a hoax, um, referring to the Silas Newton thing, and they said that they just had no um, evidence to... They, they don't know either way if it's part of a hoax. They don't know because they don't have enough information on that. Finally, they said that this was another piece of evidence that they didn't um, really investigate UFOs. And they kind of, which is interesting, uh, mentioned that, uh, look, we didn't investigate this. This just demonstrates we didn't think much of UFOs even back then. So not even enough to do our own investigation. So 
the FBI's memo was or story on this is really interesting. I certainly recommend that people take a look at it. Of course, we have a link to it on our website. But it's also really interesting that even though they did their best in this story to clarify some of the inaccuracies that the media has been getting out there, there is practically no media story out there right now that doesn't have one or two points completely wrong. Um, this is amazing to me, Jason. They're not even reading the story before they write their stories. It's been fascinating watching the buzz develop around this story and just see every, absolutely every media outlet in the world pick up this story and kind of write their own version of it. And you're right. It seems like they didn't even read the FBI's story on this. They read some other media outlet story and then kind of based their story on that, but really didn't look at the details of the story. It's kind of embarrassing. Yeah. How hard is it to just click the link, read the FBI story, which clarifies... It's not that long. Yeah, it's it's not very long at all. I mean, it's so easy to do, but they're not even doing that, and they're just still getting it wrong. It's just amazing. And uh, Lee Spiegel wrote his story on the Huffington Post kind of centered around how the media is getting it wrong, uh, which is kind of funny, which has frustrated all of us, because just how tough is it? We do this every day. We at least go, you know, try to clarify and make our stories as accurate as possible. Yeah. Ay, 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 Jason. What are we going to do with these people? I don't think there's anything you can do, Alejandro. All right. Well, thank you, Jason, for uh, talking about these stories with me again today. But uh, why don't we go ahead and bring on Rob and uh, Trish and talk about aliens in the backyard. All right. I am happy to have on the show Trish and Rob McGregor. Hello. Hello, Alejandro. Happy Easter. Yes, how are you? Good. We're good. And and out of curiosity, what part of the country are you in? We're in South Florida near West Palm Beach. Oh, okay. So you're probably enjoying some beautiful weather. Yeah, uh, kind of warm today. So. Uh-huh, yeah, it's starting to get warm out here. But we shouldn't brag because a lot of, a lot of the country's uh, chilly. Right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> snowy and snowy. <laughs> All right, so this is pretty exciting. I'm all, I always get excited about all the new books that come out. You have a new book called Aliens in the Backyard, UFO Encounters, Abductions, and Synchronicities. And, and I love the title because, you know, literally you get reports sometimes of people seeing aliens in their backyard. And uh, you have a few cases you tackled here. But I wanted to talk about you all and how you got interested into this topic and how you came into um, being authors. Okay, we've had a long time uh, interest in the phenomena of UFOs and alien encounters, but uh, and we've been writing books for years, for a couple of decades, uh, but we never really knew how to enter such a vast topic because it, it's so huge. There's so many different aspects to uh, UFOs and alien encounters uh, until we realized that we could approach the subject from the perspective of synchronicity or meaningful coincidence. Mm. And we had just written two bo- uh, nonfiction books on synchronicity. And so uh, we realized that we'd found that people, uh, in our first two books, we found that people had encounters and uh, who had encounters and abductions start uh, experiencing synchronicities in the aftermath, especially. And uh, it, uh, this reveals that there's a, a mystical connection, uh, a connection to the unconscious mind between them and us. 
That's interesting you say that. I had someone on the show fairly recently who said the same thing, and I actually at our, our you know, we host a, a conference out here. I kind of asked pe- around, and people said, yeah, that they did feel that that was true, that synchronicities happen more um, after they had abduction experiences. And it may be because synchronicities can act as a confirmation, an affirmation, a warning. Uh, they can bring up you know, emotional issues that you need to confront. So in the aftermath of an abduction, for instance, synchronicity could be a, like a roadmap. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's actually, there was a synchronicity that led us to writing this book. Uh, uh, in Seven Secrets of Synchronicity, sold to about a half dozen foreign countries, including a French-Canadian publishing house. And in February of 2012, a French-Canadian named Charles Fontaine walked into a Montreal bookstore. He saw the book and felt compelled to pick it up. He didn't read books because he, uh, with his job in the aeronautical engineering, he was always reading every day as part of his work. And so he didn't spend much time reading books or going into bookstores. He put the book back and then returned the next day, felt he had to have that book because of what had happened to, to him. So while reading it, he Googled UFOs, and synchronicity and the first image that came up happened to be from our blog and it was an eerie uh, showed a, uh, an illustration that was eerily similar to what he had seen in his backyard one year earlier and then he realized that the blog was that of uh, the sa- of the authors of the book he was reading and so he knew he had to contact us and tell his story and that's how we uh, we found our started. that's how we found our way into the story <laughs> Oh, how interesting. And he is, it looks like, one of the peop- people, uh, one of the four stories you focus on in the book. Right. right. Yeah, his story is really powerful uh, emotionally. emotionally, yeah. Okay, can you tell us a little bit about his story? Sure. Uh, so, Charles and his wife, Helene, are middle-class French-Canadian Catholics who've never really thought much about UFOs. Uh, they were something from movies and TV and uh, Charles said, uh, told, told us, I thought if they were real, the U.S. military and the government would have told us about that long ago, which seems to be to, to us is sort of a naive statement. <laughs> but OK, one morning then, late in March of 2011, their dog jumped up on the bed at 3 a.m. and started growling and barking and wouldn't get down. And that was really unusual behavior for Spot. That was actually the dog's name, Spot. <laughs> An original yeah. name. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. They finally calmed the dog down and went back to sleep. But Charles had to get up at 5 a.m., which is his usual time, because he lives out in the countryside and drives into the city of Montreal and takes his daughter to college first as well. So typically what he did is he let Spot, the dog, out the back door to do its business. But for some reason, Spot refused to go out, which is really unusual. So he, he nudged the dog out with his foot out onto the back patio and stepped out himself. And that's when he noticed these odd lights in the field behind the house. Behind the house is a farmer's uh, field. And the patio lights came on as uh, Spot uh, tripped the sensor. And he moved right back in, turned off the, the lights so he could see those lights better. And what he, what he saw were nine inverted, nine, nine lights that were like inverted ice cream cones uh, that were that had some kind of energy rising up these tubes of light from uh, from the earth 
upward, circling around, and they were beautiful. He was fascinated by them. He, he, he counted nine of them. He stared at them for two, three minutes and suddenly realized, oh, I've got to get a Helene up. She's got to see this. So uh, he didn't know what it was, and he went, woke her up, and came out, and he could, I should say, he couldn't see what was above it. There was some dark object above, but he, he couldn't make it out. It's just the lights, all he saw. And she says, oh, that's what I saw two weeks ago on my way home when I was about 10 minutes from here in the, in, in the dark. And I started telling you about this, but you thought I was talking about deer running across the road or something. And you just, you're watching television. You just ignored me. <laughs> and, and then he, at that point, Charles looks over to his right and he sees this vertical band of light circling around coming through into the backyard between a weeping willow tree and the house. And the, the band has these blue O-rings moving inside. And he, uh, and then he sees and uh, that, that it's a machine, a, a vehicle that he can see the gray structure around this, uh, this band of light. And so it's like a, a UFO, a flying saucer-shaped object that is vertical rather than horizontal, coming in sideways. And he, uh, at that moment, he turns to, uh, turns to grab the dog, and he looks at Spot, and Spot is covered in gold light. And that's the last thing he remembers. The next thing he knows, he's taking a shower. And uh, he has no idea how he got in the shower and what's going on. And his wife, he later found out, had a big dreamlike memory of being floated into bed, feeling as if she weighed 500 pounds, sinking into the bed and the bed just folding around her and falling into a deep, deep sleep. Wow. Uh, and oddly enough, Charles did not lose any time. There was, it was more like a compression of time. He knows something happened to him. Something was going on, but it was still dark outside and he wasn't late. He actually went to, continued on with his routine, went to work. And, but once he got to work, he just Started, closed the door and started collapsing because he knows something, uh, something happened to him. His head was pounding. He talked to his wife. Her head was pounding. And this went on for days, a couple weeks actually, the, with these terrible headaches that he had. And insomnia. And insomnia, yeah. And, and deep was, depression. Right, and deep depression that he went into for several months. So that's, uh, that's how his, his story is most interesting because of, all the things that happened afterwards with the synchronicities, but the event itself was quite short-lived. He saw these lights, he saw this vehicle moving towards him, and then it's just blank. He tried uh, hypnosis a couple times, but it, it didn't work for him uh, at all. He, hmm. he just didn't go under. And um, so, uh, but he, he knows something happened, and his life has just changed. His whole reality has changed. Uh, he. He's not the same person he was before. While his wife, she said, let's just think that we saw something that not many people have a chance to see. We should be uh, we should be happy about that and just let it go and forget about it. And but he won't let it go. Mm -hmm. So has it been uh, since then traumatic and like a, a negative thing for him? It's a, have these impacts been negative? Yeah, he doesn't like it at all. I mean. Mm -hmm. uh, it's it hasn't uh, been a pleasant experience for for him at all. And I mean, his whole world view was turned upside down. Mm -hmm. You know, so it's like you got to piece things back together. And right. I just 
uh, emailed him the other day on the second anniversary, which uh, which is March 28th, the second anniversary of the experience, and he he, he says he's still depressed and he he doesn't uh, oh, no. feel feel good about it at all. And I mean, when uh, when readers get into this story, I mean, it is pretty shocking. I mean, he's he's thinking about uh, committing suicide a number of times. And oh no! Uh, yeah, it, it's. it's it's pretty surprising. It's interesting that, um, I mean, synchronicities can often be very subtle, but he uh, obviously recognized the synchronicities happening to him so much that he got your book on synchronicities. What were some of the examples? What's an example of maybe one of, like a synchronicity he experienced he remembers well? Okay, well, one of them, the the day he came home from from work after having the experience, he goes out in the field, he looks around, <clears throat> the ground is frozen, he doesn't see any marks or anything that he can tell is uh, related to what he saw. So he goes over to the farmer's barn and the house. The barn is always lit up at five in the morning where he's out milking his cows. So he talks to the farmer and says, did you see any lights moving in the field uh, early this morning? And the farmer kind of frowns at him and said, what kind of lights are you talking about? And then he doesn't want to say he saw UFOs, so he, he says, um, maybe they were snowmobiles, uh, snowmobilers, and they were up to no good. I just want to know if you saw anything. So he leaves him and then goes over to his next-door neighbor's house. They also get up early. He knocks on the door and talks to the, the man, and he says, uh, he was up, but he didn't look out in the backyard. And from another room, the wife calls out. She says, Charles, Charles, did you see a UFO back, back in the backyard? And... He's, he's he's taken back. He's taken back, uh, and he says uh, he says uh, at first he says no. He denies that it. it's just uh, uh, snowmobiles. And she said no. I I know that you saw a UFO, didn't you? And uh, then he finds out why she's saying that. Her cousin, who she hasn't been in contact with for several years, two weeks ago, had called her up. And he's, uh, they consider him kind of the family weirdo. Well, he's a medium. <laughs> and huh. he said, you're going to, uh, you, you might be seeing UFOs in your backyard very soon. And that's what Charles saw. And so that was uh, astonishing. He, uh, he goes home <laughs> then and takes the dog spot out for a walk. And immediately the dog is having trouble walking uh, with its front left paw. And so he picks up the dog, carries it back in, calls the vet, and he, uh, the vet is still open, even though it's about 6 o'clock, and he rushes the vet in. And the vet looks at the paw and can't find anything, but says to him something odd. He says, a, a front left paw like this, it could relate to something that happened to the dog's neck. He goes home, he gets some medication, goes home, gets a call, and it's the neighbor woman saying, uh, you've got to talk to my cousin. He wants to talk to you. And so he calls up, the cousin calls him up. and The medium. Yeah, yeah. the medium. And, sa and says, check your dog's paw, front left paw. There's something wrong with it. And he's got an implant in his neck. So <laughs> those were, uh, you know, a couple examples of things that, that happened to him. Uh, the you know, strangers that, in the know, you know, it seems to be a fairly common uh, synchronicity related to all this. And he had another experience where he went to a pharmacy to find some sleeping pills, something something to help him sleep at night. 
And so the pharmacist comes over to him, asks how he can help, and he, he just says he's uh, he's having trouble sleeping. And the pharmacist looks at him and says, where did it happen? Inside the house or outside? And he says, what are you talking about? Your experience. You saw them, didn't you? And so he's totally started, startled. Wow. Stranger, a pharmacist walks up to him and knows he's had a UFO experience. And then he get, hands him a telephone number, a name and a telephone number, and says, contact this man. Well, he uh, at first he didn't do it, but then he finally gets a hold of him. And it's a microbiologist who lives in uh, Montreal and who apparently has uh, a lot of knowledge about the UFO scene in Canada, and they get together, and he helps them out some uh, through his experience. So the things were just coming together synchronistically like that to him, one thing after another. And those neighbors, he would see those neighbors everywhere he went for weeks, and he never saw those neighbors, even even in the his in in his own neighborhood, he rarely saw them. And he would go to a restaurant twenty miles away, the mall, there they would be. Wow, and they said, we're not following you. Are you following us? <laughs> uh-huh. How strange, you know, um, about the synchronicities, it's really cool that it was a synchronicity that brought him to you all and, and helped inspire the book, but um, the experience is, you know, Dr. Leo Sprinkle someone who's been in this field for decades, and I love his work, and he yeah. feels, I think this, this case is kind of a perfect example of what he's seen over the years, in that um, Helene had kind of an open idea about things that, wow, this is an incredible experience. We need right. to just uh, accept it. And Charles struggles with it. And Dr. Yeah. Sprinkle has seen, he feels that these experiences are for that purpose in that um, to expand our world views and that the harder we struggle, the harder we push back, like Charles is, the more traumatic the experience is. And once he finally learns to adopt his wife's attitude, um, it'll open up his, his worldview and his understanding of the world, but it will also be uh, less traumatic for him. Well, you know, I mean, there, there seem to be two camps of thought about this. You've got John Mack and Leo Sprinkle, for instance, who think ultimately you, you benefit from these. Then you have people like Bud Hopkins and David Jacobs and the people who, mm-hmm. that we've talked to who view this thing primarily as negative, as scary, is terrifying, you know. Uh-huh. Yeah, so, the, the people that we focus on, a couple of them have had positive experiences, but not with grace from with, uh, right. with other entities. And, but they had, they've all had experiences that were were not so they they did not consider friendly. Uh, for, in, for instance, one of the lifelong abductees, Diane Fine. Um, in the 1990s, she was working at a marina in California, and she was going up and down stairs all day, and she, she was developing a problem in her left knee, but she hadn't had a chance to go to a clinic. She was a Navy wife at the time. And one night, she woke and found herself on the familiar surgical table on a craft, and she realized these grays were, were operating on her knee. And she said, oh, wait a minute. If you can do that, why can't you fix my autoimmune problems? And telepathically, they communicated that the knee was mechanical and the autoimmune system thing was karmic. Hmm. So there she had, you know, an experience and the actual healing of her knee. It never bothered her again. When she woke up the next day, there was a small scar. It cleared up really quickly. And the knee never bugged her again. So, you know, but that I, 
so I think that within the, even the negative experiences, there are positive things that happen. Right. And that's why, yeah, it gets really, I think it gets more difficult when we try to look at negative and positive. Um, right. Because, you know, maybe that's not how these things work and that the world, you know, uh, you can't necessarily see as negative and positive. But I did want to ask about the synchronicities. For instance, the synchronicity that happened where uh, Charles had come across your work and it kind of helped inspire uh, you all. And so it was it encouraged an action. And it seems as though I, I feel like that personally in my life that there are some synchronicities and they're kind of like um um signposts where it's like, okay, right. here's something and, and it's showing me it, to me it has an effect of, okay, I like moving in this direction. It seems uh-huh. like this is the right way to go. Right. Do you all see synchronicities that way? Oh yeah. synchronicities they they can be just shocking. They can be humorous. They can be affirmative. They confirm a path. They can be a warning. Yeah, I mean, synchronicities are just the, the entire, what do you want to call it? Like the whole reality of synchronicity is, is just layered and complex. But some synchronicities are simple, mm-hmm. you know, but until you start trying to figure out, okay, what, number one, where do they come from? Why do they happen? What, does it mean you're in the flow? Are you, you know, was Charles, for him, I think it, it was about, finding a path of understanding through what had happened to him. Mm-hmm. So and, synchronicities can possibly serve multiple purposes. Right. Yeah, okay. you, have to, you have to look at it to judge for yourself. Is this a warning or is this something that's telling you that this is the path to follow? You have to make that decision, but it's showing you one thing or another. For instance, a lot of abductions, people wake up at 3 or 3.33, or 3.30 in the mm-hmm. morning. You know, that, so there you have a cluster of numbers, and, and clusters of numbers, clusters of anything can be synchronicities. Mm-hmm. So there I think, you know, like, if, if we get a lot of hits on our blog with people going, why am I waking up at 3.33 every morning? You know, and I'm thinking, well, maybe it's related to an abduction. Mm-hmm. Now with Diane, what were some of uh, the synchronicities? Because she's in your book also, right? And uh, yes. what kind of synchronicities was she having? Well, she had – I should back up a little bit here. She, in 1979, she, when she was still in her teens, she was diagnosed with cystic ovary disease and had three surgeries and was told she would never be able to get pregnant. And so she was living in a college town in upstate New York and went to see her do- her family doctor because she'd been feeling nauseated and exhausted. So he did the exam and said, you're pregnant. And she said, I can't be. He said, you are. So he sent her, because she was considered to be high risk, he sent her to a specialist facility in Vermont because at that time there was nothing uh, in New York State, you know, there weren't a lot of choices to go see a specialist. So she and her roommates left early that morning to head into, it was like a three-hour drive, and they left early so that they could explore Burlington before they got to uh, her appointment. And everything's fine until they pass through the town of Denimora, in which is part of Saranac Lake. And 
there's kind of a dark, at least the way the things I've read, Denimora sounds like it's got a lot of dark energy <laughs> circling around it. It was a hospital for the criminally insane for 72 years. The, you know, this is the kind of place Ken Kesey wrote about, you know, you do electroshock and that kind of thing. So anyway, they passed through the town of Denimora, and this dense fog moved in, and they couldn't see. The visibility shrank to zero, so Deborah said, let's pull off the side of the road and wait out the fog. And they found this gravel driveway, and they followed it up, and there was a like a converted barn that was had been made into like a restaurant and bar. So they went inside, and there were the people behind the counter was a couple. They were short, gray-haired, elderly. And nobody else was in the place. So Diane and her two roommates sat down, ordered sodas. And she remembers nothing from the point she sipped this soda. Which is a real sweet taste. Sweet, yeah. She, she never said, tasted anything quite like that hmm. before. And <clears throat> until several hours later when, when she and her roommates found themselves waiting at the dock to cross Lake Champlain. They didn't have any idea how it gotten to be late afternoon. They didn't know they didn't know anything. You know, they just suddenly were at the ferry. So she gets to her appointment, manages to make the appointment, and she's examined by one nurse practitioner who seems rather befuddled and who calls in another nurse who also examines Deborah. And then they tell her this is an unpregnant womb. Well, she was supposedly eight, eight to nine weeks pregnant. And so, of course, she freaks out. She says, well, you know, what was the original diagnosis wrong? No, it wasn't wrong. All the test results are positive, you know. Anyway, they, they couldn't answer why she was suddenly not pregnant. So they gave her a Valium and sent her on her way. Hmm. Now, it wasn't a, if you look back to 1979, there wasn't, I don't think there was anything written about missing pregnancies and the abduction stuff. So she wasn't for several years before she really understood what had happened, but she knew, she felt intuitively she, she knew that something had happened during those missing, that, that missing time. And what happened when they were driving back? And here's the synchronicity. They, they, went, they went through Denimora again, or approaching Denimora again, and they saw, they said, there's that, that, that gravel road. Let's go back up there and uh, take a look at that place again. That's where it all, something happened there. They drive up the gravel road. They recognize everything except there's no barn restaurant there. The building's not there. The building is gone. Hmm. And so it, they may have been looking, seeing a bar restaurant, but it was something else altogether. And she, she called this, she says, it's a dark trickster. Well, the trickster is, is one facet of, of synchronicity. And also the, the energy of that town could be right is a synchronicity as well because of the of its history and then the the crazy thing that happened to her when she passed through the town so an event that mainstream science considers impossible okay occurred near a prison whose name is synonymous with insanity hmm. that's the dark trickster now when you talk about a trickster uh is it do you mean that the trickster itself is kind of another name for uh, synchronicity or a kind of is this some sort of uh, facilitator of synchronicities I guess no, it's, it's, it's uh -huh. just it's just another type of synchronicity mm -hmm. you know I mean it not not all sync like the way to think of it is think of Smeagol uh -huh. <laughs> okay he was a little trickster 
and thinking of uh, the trickster as the, the synchronicity is like uh, pulling a trick on you, a joke. Uh, the the kind joke of a cruel is on joke, you. But <laughs> yeah, oftentimes a cruel joke, but it, it turns out to be a synchronicity. So your other books have been about synchronicities with other types of phenomena, such as um, with afterlife experiences or right. things like this. Do you do synchronicities seem to function similarly with these other phenomena as well as the abduction phenomena? Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, I, I'm I'm coming around to wondering if you know the this idea of aliens that there I'm beginning to think there may be a connection between aliens and the dead. Mm-hmm. What sort of connection do you think? I don't know. Uh huh. But well, it's so, yeah, here, here's Rob. Rob will tell you the part about Charles. Yeah. This. Well, first of all, uh, some people who have had abduction experiences that they can recall either uh, from their own memories or through hypnotic regression see dead friends with the along with the aliens, and whether that is uh, a screen memory or whether a, a screen true. memory that it could actually be a gray appearing as a friend, then uh, the, the gray is thinking that you'll be more comfortable if you see a friend, even though that friend is dead, uh-huh. uh, in the, uh, the image. Well, what happened to Charles is that nine days before his traumatic experience, he went to a, a graveyard with his father uh, nearby, uh, where they live, and they were working on a project, uh, a family tree project, and so he goes out and is taking notes on different family members who have passed away, and it's real windy and cold, and he goes back and gets his camera to just take pictures, and he's taking pictures of one of their relatives who had died very recently, and it was a, a, a situation where neither him or his father went to the funeral because of a long-time feud uh, family feud that was going on between that part of the family and his and suddenly he hears his father yelling uh, at him and he uh, get away get away from get away from that grave but he can't even see his father and he has trouble finding his father when he finally finds his father his father says I heard this voice in my head that said get your father away from that get your son get your excuse me get your son away from that grave. And so, you know, they finished up and went on. And uh, he went home and he has to take his daughter uh, to her job. He's driving, this is a couple hours later, driving his daughter to work when he suddenly feels this moisture, this wetness in his pants. And he's very embarrassed. He has to pull over to a gas station, runs into the men's room. And he's thinking he's peed on himself. He opens his pants and his pants are full of blood. Mm. And, uh, so, you know, he, he's he's in shock about this. He and, goes to the ER. <laughs> yeah, he goes to the ER and uh, he gets an appointment to see a specialist to uh, see possibly if, uh, if uh, you know, he has cancer. Uh, and so... His father had been diagnosed with colon cancer 20 years before. Yeah, and so he, he had reason to be freaked out. He thinks now it's, now it's his turn. So it turns out that the morning that he has the appointment with the specialist is the same morning as the abduction. So he gets to work 
and uh, half an hour later, he has to leave and go to uh, to this doctor's appointment, and he has oh, wow. these tests. Yeah, it, it all comes together, and he has the tests, and then the doctor is very puzzled, and he says, I know what you told me about that blood. There is absolutely nothing wrong with you. You're, you can go, you come back five years later for another checkup. And so he, he's just astonished by uh, by that whole by whole that that whole experience. And he Charles links this experience to the abduction. He thinks there's some kind of link there uh, be, between the, the graveyard and and in fact uh, he uh, he felt for weeks afterwards that there was entities in the house that the uh, invisible entities ghosts, spirits, whatever, <clears throat> aliens. He didn't know what it was, but something was in the house. There were a number of mysterious things going on with noises in the uh, fireplace, and uh, he, he felt that somebody would be standing near him. So uh, what they did was what was natural with their cultural background to do. They got some holy water and sprinkled holy water around the house, around the property, uh, on themselves, on the dog spot, and then they carried the holy water with them, Helene, Charles, and the daughter, in their pockets or in the purses, whatever, for a year. <laughs> so we asked, wow. Charles, we asked Charles to send us his vial of holy water, which he did, and it was sealed in a baggie, and we took it up to uh, Casa Dega, which is a spiritualist community just north of Disney World, and had a woman that we had had readings with, a psychometrist, read the vial just to see what she would pick up. We didn't tell her anything about it. In fact, she, when I handed it to her, she, she seemed kind of shocked. And afterwards, she told me because she's an ER nurse, she thought it was a vial of urine. <laughs> but no, it's a vial of holy water. I told her finally at the end. But she picked up some rather interesting details about uh, what had happened to him. And one of the things she said, she, she felt he just from reading the Bible, that he had been abducted. And I said, well, what, what was the purpose of this abduction? And she ran her fingers over the Bible again, and she said, entertainment. Hmm. So, I mean, which is kind of shocking when you think about it. You blow up in some guy's head, you know, turn his life upside down, and it's for entertainment. Mm-hmm. Well, it gets me back to this concept of trickster, which I really love. Right. Um there are a lot of people who uh, have talked about that I've seen, and, and um, I guess the late Jim Mosley is an example of uh, yes, who right. just passed you. The idea that all a lot of paranormal phenomena has this trickster kind of appeal where it's enigmatic for enigmatic sake um, sort right. of thing. But I wonder if you feel just in, in that these synchronicities have happened to these abductees do you feel that um, the synchronicities, uh, maybe it's a, it's all of the above, but are generated by these these uh, third party entities, uh, or do you think that they're subject to synchronicities just like we are? Well, I think it, I think synchronicity is actually all related to consciousness. Mm -hmm. You know, and as you take Charles, it's, okay, his consciousness was basically blown open by this by this experience, so he then was more open to noticing meaningful coincidence. Mm -hmm. And why wouldn't it be the same for, for another race or whatever these, these beings are? Right. Or, or, or it could be, you know, the, their <coughs> consciousness is totally different and they're, they mm -hmm. could be manip manipulating uh, consciousness 
in in some ways. So it's uh, it's uh, complicated. Yeah, I mean, there's besides synchronicity, there's a lot of paranormal experiences that happen uh, in these abductions. Obviously, like almost always, telepathy is involved. I mean, they don't speak English. They yeah. <laughs> don't speak at all. <laughs> right. Uh, they often, you know, people understand what they're saying, uh, but it's all through. Uh, through telepathy, and uh, also we, we found uh, a couple of cases where people who have had uh, encounters have pre- uh, precognitive experiences where they predict experiences w- uh, where they predict UFO appearances. Uh, that that was the case with one of our uh, people we wrote about Bruce Gernon, who had an experience in the Bermuda Triangle, uh, where he he went right through the heart of the Bermuda Triangle, lost all of his communication, all the electronic uh, uh, navigation navigational equipment, equipment locked, in, locked in a donut hole of a cloud that went up to 60,000 feet and rose right out of the ocean. He finally found a hole that was like a tunnel, and... They went through it, and he was he was weightless as they as they passed through it, and only the seatbelts were holding them in in place. And they get out. They uh, there's no radio contact. They're finally, the radio contact. They get radio contact back from the Miami Tower, and they have no idea where uh, the the tower says there's no there's nobody out by Bimini where uh, where you just said you were. Uh, there's no in fact there's no airplanes from Miami Beach to Bimini at all. And uh, so they said, what are you talking about? We're here. Uh, we're about 100 miles from Miami Beach right now. And at that moment, the clouds that were surrounding the plane broke, break apart. They looked down, and there they can see Miami, Miami, Beach. Miami Beach right <laughs> underneath them. It was like they were teleported 100 mm-hmm. miles instantly. Uh, so that was that was the Bermuda Triangle experience. And he... Believe he, the first thing he saw was a lenticular cloud, which lenticular clouds are almond shaped. They look kind of like UFO shaped, but they uh, a true lenticular cloud is at at least ten thousand feet uh, or higher, thirty thousand feet, of, often above mountains. They, they don't hover a thousand feet above the ocean floor <laughs> or above the ocean above sea level. Right. Uh, so he went around that, and that that cloud then started following them and spreading out. Arms and was they were going 180 miles an hour, and that cloud is moving as fast as they were. So he now believes that there was a UFO in that cloud. And so one month, uh, this is all leading to uh, one month later, he fly he he takes his girlfriend out on a night flight from Miami. Uh, they fly out uh, to see the to see the lights of the city and to see the stars, and they're they're offshore, uh, flying to the west and. They spot a a uh, gold or a, a orange. an orange light in the distance, and they're uh, like a star. But then it's growing and growing, getting bigger and bigger, and suddenly it's coming right at them. And he sees a metallic craft. Uh, he, he it's definitely metallic. He says it's coming right at them. He's trying to maneuver and it's a, huge. A, away <laughs> from it, uh, and he knows that it's it's impossible to to get away from it. And just like that, instantly it's gone. It just vanishes. Uh, and this just, thing was the size of a 747. Right. And so he's uh, he's had like uh, 
you know, he when we wrote a book together called The Fog, and he did not want it uh, to be seen as a UFO nut. So he didn't want UFO, uh, UFO stuff in there, but I managed to get one chapter in about the UFOs uh, because he's had 20 experiences. And wow. one of his experiences, he told his wife, we've got to go down to Delray Beach. There's going to be UFOs. Uh, we'll see, I know we're going to see UFOs tonight. So they drove down there and they bring these binoculars and uh, they get out the beach and suddenly from north to south, they see this uh, this bright light moving, streaking down really fast. A couple of minutes later, a second one streaks by. Then a third one. They saw five and all. Fourth one. But the fifth one stops uh, and then comes towards the beach, hovers right in front of them, you know, offshore about uh, a mile or so, and then shoots off to the south. And so, so he's had some uh, dramatic experiences. Uh, experiences related to UFOs and, uh, you know, paranormal experiences. Mm-hmm. I mean, what does he think? Does he think that um, his experience in the Bermuda Triangle maybe uh, gave him this ability, or is it something that was with him the whole time? I think, oh, well, he was young when it happened, and I don't think he thought much about anything about uh psychic experiences or the paranormal or mm-hmm. UFOs for that matter. I mean, he never heard of the Bermuda Triangle. This was 19, December of 1970 and Charles Berlitz's book wasn't going to come out for three or four more years. Mm-hmm. And so when he finally uh, saw an interview, a, a, a Dick Cavett interview of, about uh, the Bermuda Triangle, he knew he that he had had that experience and he wanted to contact uh the the person uh, is Dr. Manson Valentine, who was interviewed. Uh, but see, this this event for him defined his whole life. Just like that was one thing. You, you find out the more you talk to these people, just they, they have an experience, and their life is never again the same. So for Bruce, I mean, he was 24 in 1970, and he's still talking about what happened to him in the Bermuda Triangle. Mm-hmm. You know, Diane Fine was an abductee since she was small, and for her... Uh, what happened with her? She to, to find some sort of relief. Uh, she became she started studying Tibetan Buddhism. You know, so they each have different ways of 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 coping with with what's happened. But it's definitely a defining life event. You know, mm-hmm. right? Which kind of um, it's just interesting. Uh, like getting back to the the whole trickster idea because that's kind of the same concept as it. It's guiding us and moving us along and shifting us. Um, and we kind of play a role in each other's consciousness in that way, even through synchronicities, kind of like the um, the uh, the pharmacist for Charles right. was kind of a trickster through a synchronicity. He kind of was a trickster in Charles's life. So uh, it's it's an interesting way we all interact together. That we know in our book Seven Secrets of Synchronicity, the sixth secret was called the trickster. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know, because we had so many instances of it. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> what well, so, kind of goes back to this concept too that we're all all of our consciousness and and uh, even though we have these individual experiences and we feel these things are happening to us, uh, we're still all locked in together, kind of moving right. along together and influencing we're still each all other. Connected. Yeah, and we see connections, uh, you know, to this day related to this. Project. For example, this uh, Manson Valentine, he was the director of the Miami Museum of Science, and he had an astonishing 
academic credentials. He had three PhDs from Yale in uh, from Yale in zoology, paleontology, and geology. And in spite of those uh, academic achievements, he had a great interest in uh, things that strayed far from the mainstream science, interest in the Bermuda Triangle, Atlantis, UFOs. And in fact, it was Valentin's research that played a large role in Charles Berlitz's bestseller, The Bermuda Triangle. That's where Berlitz got his information from. So anyhow, we were... Uh, on the other side of the state. Yeah, on the other <laughs> side of the state, visiting a friend who suddenly, the other night, starts talking about Manson Valentine that her father had was working on a project with him when he died, and and we told her, hey, we know who he is. <laughs> yeah, really? <laughs> so. Yeah, that's really. But I guess they just uh, kind of never end. As it seemed like, um, the more people open them selves up to synchronicities the more they seem to to happen or is it do you think it's just the more they recognize them well i i think the the more open you are to synchronicity the greater the frequency that they occur you know mm -hmm. because once you notice something once you allow it into your consciousness it's always there <laughs> yeah and once you become aware of it they seem to they proliferate seem, they seem to proliferate <laughs> But maybe it's just because you're you're able to see them uh, when you when before you, you would ig ignore them or not overlook them, or you just dismiss them as meaningless. Yeah. Mm -hmm. but once you become aware, the, you definitely see more and more happening. Well, that sounds. It, this the book sounds great. It all is really interesting, and I guess we're running out of time. So <laughs> the website is synchrosecrets.com, where they can find all of your books. Um, so what are you guys going to do from here? Do, I mean, it looks like you haven't – this was one of your first ventures into the UFOs and stuff. Are you going to keep writing on that? Are you sticking to synchronicities? What's in the future for you all? Well, we right now we're working on something called a bookazine, which is a combination of a book and a magazine. And uh, for Hudson News, which is the, the publishing company that has all the – uh, stands, newsstands in the all all the airports around the country. Okay. And, uh, and we're we're gathering material for a second book. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we're, uh, the book zine we're doing is on UFOs, and we're also, uh, as Trish said, uh, putting together an idea for a second book, and we're going to be pursuing not just synchronicity, but the whole concept of UFOs, aliens, and the paranormal. So, kind of the links between the different paranormal. Right, uh, the paranormal factor in uh, UFO abductions and encounters. Okay, yeah, which is really interesting because as we've already touched on, there are a lot of links that go back and forth. Yeah, definitely. Psychokinesis being floated out of your bed. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, is Synchro Secrets is that the best website to go to? Is there any place else? Yeah, uh... Synchro Secrets is the website, and from there you can get to the blog, which is basically just Synchro Secrets dot com forward slash synchro secrets. Okay, great. Yep, and it's all here. Well thank you guys so much for being on the show. This has been thank really, you. really interesting and I'm sure that people are going to uh, be interested in reading all of your books. Not just this uh your latest Aliens in the Backyard. They all sound so terribly interesting. Thank <laughs> you, Alejandro. Thank you all and you have a great week. You too. Okay, you too.
thank you to Trish and Rob for a great show. There were uh, some really cool guests, and uh, I'm really interested in checking out their book. I'm sure you are, too. Remember, the website is Synchro Secrets. That's S-Y-N-C-H-R-O-S-E-C-R-E-T-S dot com. So you can see uh, their alien book and their other synchronicity books there and read more about them. Thank you for joining Open Mind UFO Radio once again. Also, thank you for our open music by Caleb Hanks and then our closed music by Two Earth Minutes. Some really cool music. I'm happy to um, be able to feature their work. There's some cool dudes, too. And then don't forget to join us next week. You can always go to Open Minds and click on openminds.tv and click on the radio link also to see who the guest is for next week as soon as we know. So to be honest, I don't know who I'm going to have on next week. I have a couple ideas that uh, I'm thinking of right now, but I'm sure by probably by tomorrow it will be up on the website. And also check openminds.tv for all your latest UFO news. And you'll also have links there to Spacing Out and then some other cool videos that we're doing called Need to Know, some little UFO clips, the last one about the Rank Corporation and UFOs. So check all that out. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week, people.